about 40 years ago, uh, things changed. Uh, so what changed, Pastor Jeff? Austin, I'm glad you asked. Yeah. Uh, the truth is, uh, in the late 1960s, uh, there was a movement amongst women, uh, led by women, and it was called the Women's Liberation Movement. And it took root in the United States, and it took root in most Western countries. And in a few short years, listen close, entire denominations switched their view of this passage. Entire denominations adjusted how they viewed the words we're going to look at today to accommodate this uh, brand new feminist movement and this huge cultural shift in our society. So, I think uh, you're looking a little more awake all of a sudden. Uh, this is likely, I'll say it again, the most explosive, controversial, genuine, hot-button issue uh, in the church today, and I'm well aware uh, that this passage we landed on is touchy and testy and thorny and knotty, and I guess I just want to say right off the bat, uh, good chance I'm going to tick some of you off. Because um, no matter which way you go here, uh, somebody's going to be upset. So I, I just want you to know uh, from my heart, I'm not, I'm not wanting to make any of you angry or testy or feel ornery this morning. Um, but I am committed to this. If we're going to work through a book of the Bible, we're not going to duck when, when it gets hard. So we're not ducking today. We're going to dig in and best we can figure out what it is that the Lord inspired the Apostle Paul to say. And uh, we're going to dig in and study it and see what exactly he has to say on this subject. So, how's that for an introduction? Um, ready to stand and read one of the most combative passages in the Bible? Let's uh, stand together. Uh, some of you are already looking, what is we about to read? Yeah, well, we're going to start with verse 1, 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to read down through the end of the chapter. And I need to tell you one more thing. This is kind of a little side thing. Uh, this is the 2011 NIV version. Well, why did you switch on us? Because the 1984 version is no longer available. And uh, we get our projection and what we print in the bulletin off of the, uh, the websites that uh, the NIV puts out, no longer available. So we had no choice. We now are projecting the 2011 version. That's what's printed on your bulletin. So if you have the 1984 version, like many of you probably do, uh, there's a few words. It's, there's really pretty inconsequential, but there's a few words adjusted. So therefore, there's your explanation. You'll understand why it might read just a little bit different here and there, okay? Here we go. Verse 1, let's out loud read God's Word together. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. We're going to stop. These are great verses, but this was last week's sermon there. So uh, let's slide down to verse 8. Really good. Okay. Hey, you know what? This is spring ahead Sunday, you know? We're all a little foggy here this morning, moi included. Okay, here we go. Therefore... 
I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Let's pray and you'll be dismissed. Let's, uh... <laughs> Man, what were you thinking? Uh, let's pray. Lord, uh, we need your help. I need your help. Uh, protect these goofy lips from saying something really foolish. So uh, as we dig into your word today, we know that you inspired Paul to write it down, but we also recognize that in today's culture, these, these words are not popular and they're controversial, and we need your help. Lord, help us to understand exactly what it is you were uh, directing Paul to say to Timothy. And Lord, more importantly, help us to understand what that means for us today. Lord, I also recognize that some are here today and they're worn out and they're tired and they're weary and they're overwhelmed in some significant areas in their life. So Lord, as we gather in your church, I pray that even right now you might rain down your grace, your goodness, your blessings, your, your peace, your encouragement on those who come today in your church. And, and they're not doing well. So, Lord, thank you that we can gather with brothers and sisters who have uh, a love and a devotion to your son, Jesus. And, Lord, may being with brothers and sisters in Christ, your family, may that bring all the, the good stuff, the, the peace, the, the hope, the, uh, the joy that only you can bring to them. So rain down good stuff on us today. We hold on tight to you. Lord, we're also grateful we can ask for the very same spirit that inspired Paul to write these words down. That very same spirit, Lord, is with us in your church right now. And we give you permission right now to come and take charge in your church. Lord, you come and take charge in our individual lives. You rule and reign and help us, Lord, to be filled and controlled by the third person of the Trinity. May Jesus be heard from in his church today. And all gathered at the church at Walloon Lake said as one. Amen. You may be seated. Okay. Before we dig in, I, I, I need to add one more uh, piece to the puzzle. 
And this is important. Uh, one of the reasons this passage has become such a lightning rod, um, one of the reasons there was such a thing as the women's liberation movement was they were reacting to men who over the centuries have walked on, walked over, belittled, and taken advantage of women. That's just a reality. And if uh, men were godly men being the godly loving servants they're called to be, there wouldn't have needed to be such a movement. But uh, unfortunately, over the centuries, men oftentimes have abused and treated as second-class citizens our mothers, our wives, our daughters, our sisters, our aunts, and our grandmothers. And I need to say shame on them. <laughs> and sometimes they've used passages like the one we're going to look at, even in the church, to be ogres and tyrants and dictators, and excuse the French, evil jerks. That's just the reality. So let's don't blame all of this on Gloria Steinem and Ms. Magazine and all of, because the truth is, men, we bear most of the blame for why this has become so controversial and explosive. Okay? So I think that's enough, Jerry. Time to dig in, don't you think? Yeah. Here we go. Verse 8, please look at it. That's, that's our first verse we're studying today. It's tied to the first seven verses, which are in relationship to prayer. Remember last week the challenge? Uh, I double-dog dared you to pray for authorities. Uh, pray specifically, talks about kings, um, Today in our culture, our king, our equivalent would be our president. Uh, pray for our president, our vice president. Pray for the Supreme Court. Pray for Congress. Uh, pray for our state officials, authorities. So, how many of you took the challenge and at least one day you prayed and put this, this passage into practice? Can I see some hands? Hey, nice job. Keep up the good work, okay? One week's a start, right? Keep going. And, and again, what I believe really more than, yes, it will change them, but more importantly, it'll change me. And, and suddenly, instead of me being filled with bitterness and anger and frustration, now suddenly, Lord, I can give them to you and pray for you to work in their lives, okay? So Paul is still talking about prayer in the church as we slide into verse 8, okay? So he's talking about praying in church, and now he instructs men, verse 8, this is aimed at men, uh, about proper praying in the church at Ephesus, in the church at Walloon. Here we go. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. What uh, Paul says is there are things that hinder prayer. Um, men, there are some things that go on in our lives that cause our prayers to be ineffective. And the first thing, look at verse 8, is when we lift up, not with holy hands, but we lift up our hands in prayer with 
filthy or dirty or sinful hands, and we haven't taken the time to deal with those things before we come to the Lord in prayer. 1 Peter 3, 7 says, Men, when you're not getting along with your wife and you're not loving your wife as you ought to, one of the things, the consequence of not getting along with your wife, 1 Peter 3, 7, consequence is the Lord no longer is listening to your prayers. They're ineffective. They don't make a difference anymore. And that's pretty much what he's saying here. Church at Ephesus, when you come into church and you're praying and, and, oh man, does it look good, but you don't have holy hands, you haven't taken the time to get your life right with Christ, you're just babbling on and it really is not making much of a difference. Second thing that interferes with our prayer, verse 8 is when we pray when there's anger and animosity between me and someone else. That's never happened, right, Bob? You've never come to church and you were angry and ticked off with somebody, right? Well, uh, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 23, if you're in church and uh, Pastor Tim calls the ushers down and now we're about to take up the offering and you've got your money and you've got your check and you're about to put it in the offering plate, and then, Bob, you remember, oh, yeah, I've got some animosity with, with Roger. Um, here's what he says, Matthew 5, 23. You can look it up later. Um, forget the offering. Go to Roger. Get it taken care of. Then you can go and give your offering. We, we come and we do church, but sometimes we forget that the Lord is more interested in, in that we're taking care of business when there's anger and animosity between us and someone else. So, so get that taken care of. Otherwise, that's going to affect your praying. Finally, verse 8, prayer is not effective, and this is kind of related, when there's quarreling going on between you and someone else. Do I dare ask? Did anybody have uh, any nice little heated discussion on the way to church today? And you don't have to point anybody out, but just think about it. Uh, because it seems like Satan is a master, is he not, at getting Sunday mornings to be explosive. And, and there's arguing and there's quarreling and there's strife in the family between you and your, your bride or your husband. And, and there's strife going on between you and the kids or, or some situation. Here's what he says. When you come and, you, and you're going to pray in the church... Make sure that there's not bickering and quarreling and ugliness between you and others. Apparently, some men in the church at Ephesus were coming into prayer, and um, they weren't right with the Lord. There was still sin between them and the Lord. Perhaps, imagine this, uh, Uncle Dick, maybe even leaders, because next week, if you look at chapter 3, he's talking about the leaders in the church. So maybe he's aiming this even at the elders and the deacons in the church, and they were leading in prayer, but there was still sin between them and the Lord and sin between them and others. And uh, they, they hadn't taken the time, Myron. They hadn't taken, made the effort to make things right between them and the Lord and them and other people before they come into the church service. Make sense? 
Uh, and, and he's saying, what are you doing? You're coming into church and, and, and you're ugly and you're angry and you got dirty hands and there's quarrels going on. You'd be better off just sitting there being quiet than acting like you're worshiping the Lord with holy hands. Um, make sure if you want your prayer to be effective, church at Ephesus, church at Walloon, take the time, take the effort, get yourself right between you and the Lord and you and other people. Pretty straightforward. Verses 9 and 10, Paul moves on to the prayers of women. And I want you to see, this is still tied to verse 8, which is tied to the, the matter of prayer. Uh, verse 9 says, I also want women to, again, the, the subject here is prayer. I also want women to, so he's tying verses 9 and 10 into the issue of effective prayer. Here we go, verse 9. I want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Paul says, church at Ephesus, uh, just as the men were uh, contributing to ineffective prayer, um, there's things that you're doing that are contributing to ineffective prayer in the church at Ephesus. Look at verse 9, would you? He, he lists out three. He says, you're coming to church and, and you're dressing immodestly and indecently and without propriety. I had to look that one up. Austin, that means without good taste, without being appropriate for worship. That's what the propriety is all about. Okay, so, so you're coming in and you're dressing in a way that's not appropriate for church. And that's affecting the effectiveness of your prayer. You're wondering why your prayers aren't making a difference. Well, you're coming in and you're not dressing correctly. Now, we can get all caught up in the, look at verse 9, the uh, braids and the hairstyles and the gold and the pearls and the expensive clothes. And I believe that was the specific issue that was going on there in the church at Ephesus. But here's one thing we know for sure. You ready, Jesse? Styles change. And they, they don't just change worldwide, they change here today. Isn't that right, Carol? Because every, every year you'd go back and there'd be new styles and, and, and new things going on. Uh, hairstyles, jewelry, fashion changes constantly. Matter of fact, I could take you, we're not going to go there because I'm going to run out of time. But in 1 Corinthians 11, 5 and 6, Paul addresses the church at Corinth. And in the church at Corinth, here's what was going on. Women were coming to church with their heads uncovered. Now, that doesn't seem like a big deal to us because uh, covering your head. Uh, they were coming without a hat, without a scarf, without a proper covering. And in the church at Corinth, the only people who didn't cover their head were women with loose morals. 
women who were prostitutes. You tracking with me? Uh, and that's still true in many, many Middle Eastern countries today. The only women who wouldn't wear a hair covering are, are women who are advertising, I've got loose morals, or maybe even worse, that they're a prostitute. Okay? Again, I want you to understand that was specific to what was going on in the church at Corinth. It, it, in the church at Ephesus, they had different issues. So what is the eternal principle that we need to grab a hold of here? You ready? Look, look at verses 9 and 10. Uh, modesty, uh, decency, and propriety. Make sure that when you come into church, you're dressed modestly and decently and with proper propriety. Uh, we said that again. That's good taste, appropriate for worship, Ruthie. Okay? Make sure. Um, again, what does that mean for us? If, if you come into church... Uh, and, and you're dressing like Gaga or Madonna or a Sports Illustrated model or you're dressing like a temple prostitute, church at Ephesus, uh-uh, that's not working. That's not working. You're coming in and everybody's looking at the outer package. Look at verse 10 when Paul says, no, no, I want them paying attention to the inner package. Uh, your good deeds, how you're walking with Christ. They can see Jesus in you. And by dressing this way, you're affecting the prayers going on in that church. Ineffective prayer going on. Instead of focusing on praying to King Jesus, they're focusing on your cleavage and on the gold bling that you're wearing. You tracking? Knock it off. Is really what he's saying. It's affecting the church. Application to us, Walloon, 2013, we're gathered here to worship who? We're Jesus Christ. He's the king, right? He's the focus. He's the awesome one. He lived that sinless life. He took our place on the cross. He shed his blood. Uh, he took our place in the tomb. Early on Sunday morning, he arose from the dead. We're here to sing songs of praise and worship and honor to him as we pray and sing and study his word together in a church. Here's what he's saying. Let's just go back to verse 8. When you come in with dirty hands and angry hearts and quarreling lips, when you come into church showing too much leg, when you come into church decked out to impress others instead of dressing to worship Jesus Christ, that's a problem. Paul's writing to Timothy, tell him to knock it off. Don't they know they're affecting the effectiveness of the church? They're hindering the work and the power and the spirit of Jesus Christ in his church. We're rendering our prayers ineffective when we're not paying attention to what's going on in our lives as we come into the church. And believe it or not, those are the non-controversial verses here, okay? Those are pretty straightforward ones, okay? So hold on, here we go. Verse 11. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. 
Paul is addressing the church service here, okay? The gathering of the body. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about a woman's role at work. He's not talking about a woman's role in school or a woman's role in government. He's not even talking about a woman's role in the home. He's talking specifically about guidelines for what goes on in the church at Ephesus, in the church at Walloon. Would you go to 1 Timothy 3.15? For me, it's just on the same page, but I, I just want you to see, because that's the purpose statement for why Paul wrote Timothy. He, he's telling here, here's my reason why I wrote this letter here to you, Tim, so that we can know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. Well, what's that? It's the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Paul is writing to Timothy about how we should conduct ourselves in the church. He's talking about the worship service here. And when the church gathers to be taught, look at verse 12, when there's teaching going on, and, and it's really important what that word means. Are you ready? I could give you the Greek word, you wouldn't care. Um, I'm not sure I care all that much other than what does it mean. Um, and when we gather and someone is about to teach in the church, the word teach means to open up and to preach and teach God's word to the body of Christ. Let that soak in for just a minute. The word teach, everywhere in the New Testament, means to open up God's word and then to teach about God's word and teach and preach to the church, to the gathered who love Jesus Christ together. Okay? Here's what Paul is saying. The person who is opening up God's word and preaching and teaching with authority should not be a woman. It should be, slide down to chapter 3, it should be an elder. It, it should be an overseer. It, it, it must be uh, a shepherd, a, a man who is called, and that elder, and we'll see this next week, a man. He's not talking here about a woman leading in song. Aren't you glad, Chris? Uh, he, he's not talking here about a woman giving an announcement. He's not talking about a woman participating or discussing things in class. He's not talking even about opening up God's word in your home or opening up Anita, God's word, as you counsel. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about what goes on in the gathered church body, verse 15 of chapter 3, okay? The elders, the spiritual leaders, should be the ones who open up God's word and preach and teach to the church. And then he says, and, and the women in the church... Your responsibility is to put yourselves under the authority of those spiritual leaders and not fight or argue or wrestle for control. That's his challenge, verses 11 and 12. Now, I can just tell you this past week, I've read hundreds of pages of excuses and reasons and really creative ways 
to say to verses 11 and 12, we don't like you, we're not listening to you, it doesn't apply to us. Uh, hundreds of pages of this is why it's okay to have women pastors and women elders in the church today. And, and I'm telling you, um, I, I could just list, the, they've got this creative way of explaining this, 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 and this. And, and they're all saying something like this. There was something cultural and specific going on in the church at Ephesus and it doesn't apply to us today. That's really the essence. Now they get creative this way and this way, but they're really all trying to say, no, no, this is a cultural thing in, in Ephesus, and therefore it doesn't apply to us living in 2013 in the United States of America. Okay? Now, the reason um, I don't believe this is cultural is the next two verses. So, uh, now Paul is going to explain his rationale for his teaching, and now uh, pay attention because verse 13, Paul tells us, here's why I told you what I just did. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Paul's argument is not about culture. Paul's argument here has its roots where? In Scripture. <laughs> so, so that's what his argument back is, is I, I'm not talking about something cultural. I'm talking something that goes back to the beginning here. And here's how well-respected scholar John Stott explains it. Are you ready? All attempts to get rid of Paul's teaching on headship on grounds that it is mistaken, confusing, culture-bound, culture-specific, must be pronounced as unsuccessful. It remains stubbornly there. It's rooted in divine revelation, not human opinion, and in divine creation, not human culture. In essence, therefore, it must be presented as having permanent and universal authority. <laughs> Verses 13 and 14... Paul is referring back to Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. And he's saying that male leadership in the church has its roots all the way back in creation in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. Verse 13, look at it. Adam was created first. And firstness in Scripture always conveys authority and privilege in the Bible. You see that in Colossians 1.15, as Jesus is the first, okay? So, with all of that, let's go back and see what he's talking about. So, if you have your Bible, go with me to Genesis chapter 2 quickly with me, would you please? Genesis chapter 2 and verse 20. Adam, in verse 20, is given authority to name all the animals. And I'm sure he's getting tired. Uh, hippopotamus, yeah, okay. Rhinoceros, uh, and I'm sure he's, he's running out of words, okay? But he gets them all named, but then it says, verse 20, last part, there's no suitable helper found for Adam. 
So verse 21, Adam's put into a deep sleep. Out of his side, a rib, the Lord creates a suitable helper to be his companion. Male and female are created to complement one another. Both are created in God's image. Both are equal in value, but they are distinct in roles. Eve, woman, was created, and the word Eve literally means woman, was created to come alongside and be Adam's helper. Adam was to be the head, the leader in the first marriage. Eve was to help and come alongside to help him. And now let's notice what happens right away. Verse 1, here we go. Genesis chapter 3, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you're going to die. You'll certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband. And, and where was Adam all this time? What's it say? She gave some to her husband. What's it say? Who was? He's right there. Standing right there next to her while, while all this was going on, and they ate it. She ate it. They ate it. Eve takes the lead with the serpent. Eve buys into the lies and the deception of Satan through the snake. And where was Adam? All this is going on. This is important, verse 6. He was with her. But instead of leading, he was in neutral. Instead of being the head, he was just kind of laying in the weeds and, you know, whatever, Eve, go for it. Uh, Eve was taking over and Adam was okay with that. So as you go on and see the consequences for her sin, slide down to verse 16. Two consequences, I think you're familiar. Severe pains in childbirth, number one. Number two, verse 16, and your desire will be for your husband and he will what? Oh, man. God says, uh, Adam, you were supposed to be in, the in charge in the garden early on, but now I'm going to make this even more pronounced. And here, Adam once again is put back in the place as the authority by God. Now, in 1 Timothy 2.14, it says that the woman was deceived it doesn't mean that women are more gullible or prone to deception. Sometimes that's a false explanation of verse 14. Um, my experience, Travis, typically the moms, the grandmas, the sisters, they, they get it a lot quicker than us. So that's not what he's talking about. Uh, wh what he's saying here is that Eve is the one who took the lead. And Eve was trying to usurp Adam's authority, and he let her, and sin and curse was the result. So, so what was going on here was there was a consequence for her trying to take Adam's spot. 
taking the lead and Adam letting her. Now, let me just say, been a pastor now for over 30 years, and I've uh, had the privilege of performing hundreds of marriages, hundreds of premarital counseling sessions, meeting with lots of hurting couples after they're already married. And I just need to tell you, we live today in a culture, if you're taking notes, this is huge, and it comes right from here. We live in a culture that tends to be filled with weak and unmotivated and often unwilling to lead men. Oftentimes in today's culture, what I'm seeing over is you see weak, unmotivated, and unwilling to lead men. And we also are living in a culture with all too often strong and unwilling to follow women. And is that exactly not what was going on here? Our culture has largely turned its back on God's word. Our culture today has largely said, largely said, no, no, that sounds dated, that sounds old. It didn't sound that way till 40 years ago. But now, for 40 years, suddenly now, um, we don't think God's plan is the way we want to go. And most churches now say, no, we don't buy that anymore. And I believe they've swallowed Satan's lie, which is still the same lie for God's role for men and women. So let me just ask you a few questions. Just ponder just a minute. Um, how are families doing today compared to 40 years ago in general? And I'm not saying that things were perfect, but in general, how many marriages do you know today that are flourishing and thriving? How many, how many marriages today you just say, wow, Satisfaction level is wonderful and off the chart. How's the divorce rate today compared to 40, 50 years ago? And, and I did some checking. Uh, today it's more than doubled, Diana. And that doesn't count for all the millions of couples who live together. And they break up and they never were married, so that doesn't count in the divorce statistics. Uh, some authors suggest that probably if you counted the couples living together as man and wife and never marrying but breaking up, the divorce rate would be three, four, five times higher today than 40 years ago. Paul says, church at Ephesus, here's God's plan. Here's the way God sees the roles of men and women in the church. Here's what God says is the way it should be played out in the church. And let's, let's not kid ourselves. This isn't popular. This isn't politically correct. This isn't easy. This is like my least favorite sermon in a long time. Just honest. But it's God's word. And we really need to ask ourselves, are we going to line ourselves up and line our church up with the clear teaching of God's word or are we going to adjust our teaching to accommodate a shifting culture? Now I want to close, and this may seem like it's coming from left field, but I don't think so. 
I want to challenge the leaders. I want to challenge the heads who are here today. So um, if you're a husband today, can I, can I just see your hand? Because I'm talking to you. Do we have any husbands here? Yeah. My hand's up too. Here's my challenge to you. Um, last week I challenged you all to be praying for our kings, our authorities, presidents, judges, congress, sheriffs. Um, today, heads, leaders, I'm going to challenge you to start praying with your wives before you go to bed. Roger, I did this four years ago. And it's like the Lord said, you know what? It's time to get back to that. Now, now how does this relate? Because we're talking about prayer. And, and, and we're talking about God's role. And you know the reason, the main reason why most women struggle with these passages? You know why, Paul? Because they don't feel loved. And if they feel loved, they're okay with you being their five-star general, and they'll fall in and be your four-star general and your helper if you're feeling and sending regular messages of love. But as soon as they're not feeling love, suddenly now they don't like these passages, and it's really hard to submit to somebody who's not loving and showing agape on a regular basis. Make sense? The best way I know, men, husbands, for you to show love is Bob tonight, before you go to sleep, grab Ruthie's hand. And, and, you know, early on, this may just be, Lord, I pray for Ruthie, do good stuff in her life. I love her, I know you love her more. Amen. And if that's all you can get out, fine, okay? I'm just telling you, if you'll for the next week start praying before you go to bed or maybe when you first get, whatever works. I think before you go to bed works best. That's just me. Um, and if you go to bed at different times, then, then whoever's going first, I'm going to bed. Okay, I'm going to pray for you before you go to bed. Okay? Whatever. Pray for him. Lift him up. And I, and I, knew, I found this first, Pastor Ward. He, he's the one who was always challenging. And i got to be honest, for years, Jason, I resisted this. Because there's something really vulnerable, Paul, when you pray. It's like, oh, man, I feel like I'm... And this is, this is, I feel like I'm, I'm so vulnerable and... Ah, it's hard. But I'm telling you, men, what a blast of agape you'll send to that four-star general of yours. And suddenly now, coming under your authority will be so much easier if she's convinced that you love her. And the best way I can get you to convince her that you love her is to start praying. 30 seconds. You know, and then, and then you might get real dangerous and go like a minute. Okay, Chris? And that'd be real. And then after a while, man, you'll, you'll just, and I'm telling you, it changes the dynamics between husbands and wives. That's my challenge. Now, some of you are saying, well, well I, I'm not married. Okay, so if you're a young man today, Jonathan, you could actually, if you were really bold, kind of go, and this would be extra bold. you get like extra credit. But if you would actually go to your mom and just grab and pray for your mom, I'm just telling you, what a blast of agape you'd send. You know what I'm talking about, Ronnie? If you went to your mom and you just prayed for your mom or prayed for your grandma, you know what? You just fill up their love tanks like crazy. That'd be really cool, wouldn't it? Okay? I think you're up to it. I really do. That's my challenge. And I'm going to say, just like I did last week, I dare you, Jeffrey. 
I, I double dog dare you, okay? You grab Sherry's hand before you go to bed, and, and okay, we're going to pray. And, and do it for a week, and then next week I'm going to encourage you to keep going, okay? Because last time, some of you told me, you know, man, this is great, it's amazing. But then you quit, okay? But I want to get you going for a week. Let's just commit to a week, and then maybe next week I can nudge you into doing another week, okay? So let's pray as we close because uh, we're out of time. Okay, challenge is this. Five-star generals, husbands, how many of you will take up the challenge? Man, this is, some of you, this is like, oh, this is hard. Can, can I do flowers or candy instead? Can I buy balloons? Can, can I do something else? You could, but we're talking about prayer here in this chapter, and you want powerful prayer for you? And your family, and this affects the church too, best way I know, will you grab your wife? Will you grab your daughter's hand? What a great thing to start with your daughters and just pray for her for 30 seconds before you go to bed tonight. It's scary, but I'm going to pray for you. How many of you will say, okay, I'll take up the challenge. Can I see your hands? <laughs> Lots of hands. Lord, thank you. Thank you for my friends. Thank you for these five-star generals who are willing to step up and take the lead to pray for their four-star generals and their daughters. And Lord, I pray even that some sons would step up and pray for moms and maybe even pray for sisters. That'd be cool. Lord, uh, even though this passage is hard and challenging um, and difficult, I pray that we as your followers will be committed to follow you even when it's hard, even when it's not popular, even when it's not politically correct. Lord, help us as a church to always stand on your word. Lord, we know that uh, as we follow you and your book, that's where blessing resides. That's where the light shines the brightest. So help us, Lord, not to duck even when it's hard. It's in the awesome name of your son, Jesus, we pray all these things. Amen. You know what? We're a little over, but if you don't mind, we're going to be a little more over. I think it's appropriate. Let's worship Christ in song just for the next few minutes. So let's stand and worship the Lord as we close.